Good morning, my friends. How are we? Good. Good. I love it. So good to hear from you all. Uh, Titus chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Titus chapter 2. If you don't have your Bibles, just take the one from your neighbor. They don't need it. And uh, you can get a gift. So, (laughs) Titus chapter 2. They're supposed to be good Christian people and share, right? So we'll just call it sharing. So far, what we've been doing in Titus is just looking at the relationship between the gospel and godliness. And uh, in Titus chapter 2, it's been a a zoomed-in look at what godliness is to look like. He starts, Paul starts the instructions in Titus chapter 2 with, uh, but as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. And so uh, what follows are just instructions in godliness to various groups of people. We saw instruction to older men and older women, younger men, younger women. Uh, And then today, Paul turns his attention to another group of people. Uh, These people would have been uh, called bondservants or slaves even in Crete. And so uh, we're going to look at Paul's instruction uh, to them today. So let's read Titus 2 verses 9 through 10, uh, and then we'll, we'll pray and we'll get started. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The truth that I want to lay before you today, kind of the the big idea, if you will, for the sermon is this, that godly workers adorn the gospel. Godly workers adorn the gospel. If you're taking notes, I encourage you to to write that down. We're going to build on that as we go today. Godly workers adorn the gospel. Let me pray for us now as we've got God's Word open, and we're going to look at it together. Heavenly Father, would you be with us now? I pray, Father, and ask that you would... Uh, Grant to us the illumination of your Spirit, uh, that your Spirit would help us to understand your Word, Uh, words that are breathed out by you, that are penned uh, here by your apostles or those who were near to them. Uh, Father, we ask that you would help us to see it, though, as it truly is, the very Word of God, um, and that it would call us, Lord, to faithful living today. Uh, Father, we pray that as we go through this work, uh, as we go through of this letter, as we go through even these uh, couple of verses today, uh, that you would reveal to us anywhere in our lives, Father, that we are not living in accordance with your word, that you would draw us to repentance, uh, Lord, that you would instruct us today that we might live rightly for you. And uh, we praise you uh, again for your word. We thank you that we have it today for our guidance, for our instruction and wisdom uh, in all salvation and all godliness. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. So uh, we've got to start with this question, what is a bondservant? In Crete, what what are these people who are called bondservants? Well, the Greek word that is used here is a word that we've actually seen once already in this letter. It's the Greek word doulos. Everybody say doulos. All right, so doulos means slave. Due to a limited Greek vocabulary, Bible translators uh, have done their due diligence and they seek to translate the word according to the context 
of its usage, how is it used in any given passage, determines whether or not it receives one of these three translations, either slave, bondservant, or servant. So bondservant is a good translation for what we see here, and I want to kind of explain why, and I think that gives us a launching point into uh, how we might think about this verse today. So New Testament slavery, the widespread in the Roman world, it's estimated that one out of every two people would have been a bond servant, would have been a slave to someone in the Roman world. But it was a far, far cry from the slavery that we see in the Old Testament or even that of 19th century slavery, which was in, uh, present in our own country. Uh, what you see are people groups in the Old Testament consistently, many times the Israelites, are captured and put into harsh slavery. So you may think about the Israelites existing in harsh slavery, uh, a kind of captivity under the Egyptians in Exodus. Now, there are Old Testament laws that prevented uh, after this, after they're led out of captivity, they're freed, uh, there were Old Testament laws which were written to, uh, against this kind of brutal slavery. Now, largely, uh, they exist because owning right? Owning a person violates the Imago Dei. Everybody know what the Imago Dei is? It means that you, it's the, the doctrine of being created in the image of God. You exist, all people exist in the image of God. Amen? God created us in his own image, male and female. He created us. And so humans bear an imprint of their maker, Humans are made in the image of God, and they are to be highly valued. They are not to be owned. You add on top of owning someone, also treating them in a harsh manner, treating them as uh, really worse than animals many times in the Old Testament. And then the problem is only compounded, right? It only becomes worse. That person is then not only robbed of their uh, image bearing, but they're robbed of their freedom. They're robbed of what makes them unique. And so in New Testament times, uh, things had come under reform a, a bit. Yet doulos is best described as a bond servant. Now, a bond servant is a bit different than a slave. Uh, yes, you would have a master. The master would have been, uh, the language that would have been used is that a master owns this bond servant. Uh, but this someone, this bond servant, is someone who is bound to serve his master uh, for a lengthy time. But they also might be able to own property, achieve some sort of social advancement. They might even be released at some point or purchase their own freedom, either through their labor or other means. Now, that is not to say that slavery, even in the New Testament, was a good thing. It's just that it was more civil, if you will. It had more of a more modesty to it. Slavery is, though... As John Stott observes, slavery is a form of tyranny. Now, even though some New Testament slave owners, he goes on to say, may have been kind to their slaves because they saw them as valuable investments, but the institution was still a denial of human personhood, Stott observes. And this really is the problem with slavery. It's a denial of human personhood. Jesus nor Paul never outright condemned, however, first century slavery. But what they did do was they laid out the principles which undermined the institution of slavery and eventually led to its uh, demise. Now, namely, what they laid out is that 
the gospel message transforms or ought to transform the slave-master relationship. The book of Philemon is a wonderful example. Uh, If you haven't read that, it's worth reading. It's one chapter long. It's very short. Uh, But it's a wonderful example of how the slave-master relationship is transformed by those who are in Christ. In Galatians 3.26, what we read is that there is neither slave nor free, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And he's writing to those who are present in the church there. So the slave and master have the same master is the point Paul is trying to make. The slave and master find a common master in Christ Jesus, and they are under his authority. Amen? And so that informs then, Paul writes in the New Testament, that informs then what this relationship ought to look like. So Paul deals with this in Galatians. He deals with it in Colossians. It's dealt with in 1 Timothy. It's dealt with here in Titus. Um, It's dealt with in many places because it was a very common thing in first century Christianity. But even if the slave doesn't have a believing master, what the slave enjoys then is an inner freedom in Christ, which transforms how he ought to think about his slavery. And that's what Paul's getting at here in Titus 1. Either way, though, whether he has a believing master or an unbelieving master, the gospel so transforms the slave-master relationship that slaves and their masters would have been present together in church services, worshiping God together. Now, this would have absolutely turned the cultural ideas of slavery on its head, which is what we mean when we say that the gospel is countercultural. Uh, it does this to many social constructs. It flips them on their, on their head. So praise God that we no longer have a society that is built presently on slavery, at least nothing like what we saw, what we see here in the New Testament, what you see in the Old Testament, or even what you saw in the 19th century. Now, I recognize that slavery still exists, such as labor camps and human trafficking. It's to be lamented. It's to be fought against um, But our American society, however, is is sustained on the backs of those who labor for wages. Oftentimes, you're laboring for a boss or for a company, right? You're laboring for someone who has employed you. Uh, We call that employment. If the gospel should transform a slave's outlook on slavery, then how much more might it transform an employee's outlook on their employment? And that's what I want to get to uh, today. I want to talk to you about godly workers. I think Paul teaches here, and in fact, I think he says very explicitly that godly workers or bondservants adorn the gospel. Godly workers adorn the gospel. Let me talk to you about what this means. I'm going to read to you again our passage today, so it's on our minds because I've just given you a a bit of a diatribe on first century slavery. So let me draw us back to the passage here. Titus 2, 9 through 10, bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So let's talk about the doctrine of God our Savior, or I'm going to condense that into one word, the gospel. What does it mean to adorn the gospel? Well, this is the purpose 
of the teaching. The teaching is meant to transform a life, and then the life is meant to live in a complementary way to the message which it has received. And so your life, even in the workplace, as we've seen earlier, that the marriage relationship should be defined by this, uh, church relationships should be defined by the gospel, uh, the way that elders lead a church should be defined by the gospel. Paul's relationship to Titus was defined by the gospel. The gospel transforms our lives, and so it must affect relationships. It must affect the way we live. And so in that way, it is adorning. Uh, now, the word adorn means to make more attractive. It means to beautify something. Christmas is coming, kids. Do you know this? Two short months. Remind your parents daily, right? I could strangle whoever does the marketing for Amazon and Walmart because we've been receiving the catalogs and we're those people who make our kids check the mail. So guess what? We couldn't hide them. And so we've been hearing now for two weeks, you know, the differing things that we want for Christmas. Anyway, Christmas is coming in two short months. But next month, the Jones family, Lord willing, is gonna, we're going to pull out our Christmas tree. We're November Christmas tree people. We're going to put it together and we're going to fluff it. Yes, I know, fake tree. Uh, we're those people. Don't judge us. But we're not going to stop at fluffing the tree and putting it together. That same evening, it's been a tradition since I was a child, and so I've carried it into my own family that we will eat good food, we'll either put on a Christmas movie or Christmas music, and we'll decorate the tree with lights and ornaments, both old and new, again, that have been in the family since my dad was a child. And the tree looks nice beforehand. You know, it's a green tree sitting there, and it's okay to look at. But we think it's beautifully adorned once it's fully decorated. Once the family finishes those touches and I get to climb on a ladder and put the star on, right? It's, it's beautifully adorned in those moments. John Stott, in his commentary, points out this, this idea about adorning he says the verb is used of arranging jewels in order to display their beauty. So it's, it's moving jewels around in such a way or placing jewels in such a way that you can see their beauty. He goes on to say the gospel is a jewel, right? So while a consistent Christian life is like the setting in which the gospel jewel is displayed. So similar to the tree that holds the lights and the ornaments or a ring band, if you will, that holds the stone that's set onto it, your life is meant to adorn the gospel message. It's meant to beautify it. It's meant to make it more lovely. People ought to be able to say by your life that I believe he really is a Christian. He says he is. She says she is. And by their life, it's noticeable. True belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ always transforms one's character. Believing in the gospel truly does not come without, without fruit. It doesn't come without character transformation. It, it comes, and you'll hear this in people's testimonies time and again, that once they came to know Christ as Savior, or once they placed their faith in Jesus Christ, or once they received Christ as Lord, their appetites and desires begin to change. The words that previously just flowed out of their mouth 
There was a check in their spirit about those things. The things that they put into their mind or into their body, there's a check in their spirit about those things. The activity that they give themselves to, there's a, there's a conviction on those things. Life changes. I'm talking about people who haven't read all the commands of God's Word yet. Right? Because this is what the Spirit does. The Spirit bears witness, Paul says in Romans 8, that we are children of God if indeed we have received the Spirit of God. It's going to bear witness in us. So the Spirit beautifies. The Spirit beautifies within us the gospel message that we have received, and so therefore it is noticeable by action. And so for that reason, Paul began this section with those instructions, teach what accords with sound doctrine. One of the things that accords with sound doctrine is repentance and faith. Here is Christ Jesus. Here is how you've rebelled against Christ. Repent and believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin and the salvation of your soul. That is sound doctrine. But Paul says, teach what accords with it. That is a life of godliness lived in response to having received the gospel by faith. So call them to repentance and faith, yes, but also instruct them how to live godly lives. So let's examine the characteristics that Paul lays out here for godly workers. I think there's three things Paul says here. The first is that godly workers adorn the gospel by submitting to authority. Godly workers adorn the gospel by submitting to authority. In Titus 2.9, bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. A running theme in Titus so far and coming up is God-ordained authority and the Christian's right response to it. In chapter 1, we have Paul writing to Titus, his true son in the faith, and he's giving him instruction. Titus is to listen to the apostolic authority of Paul, to follow it, to submit himself to these words, because these are the very words of God. We have the word of elders to the church. The church is to obey these elders. These elders are to obey God. We have wives being submissive to their own husbands, which again, as we looked at last week, means that husbands are to submit themselves to Christ. Bond servants here, submit to your masters. Next uh, chapter, in chapter 3, we receive this command that the church is to submit to the rulers and authorities. And to submit means to be or to become willing to submit to orders or wishes of those in authority over you. It's to pay attention to what's said and to, by those over you, to recognize there is authority over us, and to submit ourselves to it. You see, God establishes order, and He expects His people to recognize this order, to understand these orders, and to display godly submission to the authority over them, the proper authority over them. But this isn't the first time that we've seen doulos, as I mentioned earlier. We saw it first in Paul's salutation as he begins the letter in Titus 1, verse 1. Paul, 
a servant, a doulos of God, a slave of God. What, what Paul's saying, even to these bond servants who would have heard verse 1, not weeks ago like you have, but moments ago as this was being read. What he's saying is, is that you might be, you are a servant, you have an earthly master, but even above that, you have a master in heaven. You're a slave to him, you're his servant. And so our ultimate authority is God. Now, I want everyone in here to hear this, that that's true whether or not you are a believer. Your your authority is God. God will hold you accountable whether or not you are a believer. He is the one that you will answer to on the day of judgment, that you will give an account to. He is your master because he is the creator of all things, and everything exists under his authority. And so Paul, at the beginning of the letter, is establishing this authority that I am a slave to God. And he's informing Christians that you are slaves to God. And now bondservants, though you have an earthly master, you are a slave to God. What we understand as Christians about spiritual slavery, right, the spiritual slavery to God, is that it is spiritual freedom. It is not bondage. And in fact, we are spiritually free from the bondage of sin and death, and so we are slaves to the Most High God. We are His servants. We were once bound to sin, but by the grace of God, we are now free by the Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 3.17, we read this, that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. If you have been reborn, if you have been regenerated, that happened by the Spirit of God, Jesus says in John chapter 3. And the Spirit of God is present in your life, according to Ephesians chapter 1, that He came to you in belief, Ephesians 1 verses 13 and 14. So you have the Spirit of God alive in you as a believer, and so therefore you are free. Amen? There ought to be more excitement, but I'll I'll take it. You're free from sin and death. Sin and death has no hold over your life. You can live by the Spirit of God. That's what Paul's encouraging the Romans with in Romans 6, 7, and 8, that you are free. You're no longer bound to the sin nature. Live by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. Over and again, he's encouraging there. Romans 8, 2, it says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So by the sacrifice of Christ, by the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, you have been set free from sin and death. Amen. And this freedom in Christ, which is given to you by the Spirit of God, it's present in you, it frees you from the bondage of sin and death. And so you are now free to live entirely for God, who has redeemed you by His Spirit through the sacrifice of His Son. So such freedom, however, might have been a temptation for these early believers who were slaves to think that they are above any authority. You you may sense similar temptation in your own life, that submission to authority is not for you any longer. 
But, but I tell you today that the presence of evil authority does not mean that all authority is evil. Just as one bad apple doesn't pollute a whole tree. Amen? God governs His people through authority, both godly and ungodly authority. Daniel, the book of Daniel confirms us that it is God who sets kings in their places, both evil and good. In Romans 9, we read that God raised up Pharaoh to display His glory in the nation of Israel. So God governs people through both ungodly and worldly versions of authority, evil authority. Godly workers are to recognize authority in their workplaces and to honor it by humble submission, godly submission. Now, it likely goes without clarification, but just to be sure, if your boss asks you to do something that violates God's commands, then you must obey God, not man. Amen? Some of you maybe have experienced this in your workplace. has been asked by someone in authority to fudge a number, to lie about something, to hide an injury, leave work, something. But we must obey God, not man. You do not submit yourself to ungodly authority that seeks to make you ungodly alongside them. Evil, even if it's going to cost you your job, you must submit yourself to the Lord above man. And so, but when your boss, on the other hand, asks you to do something that doesn't violate your conscience before God, doesn't violate God's word at all, then your response is to do it with glad submission, happy submission. But because your work life is not separated from your Christian life. You are a Christian workman. You are a Christian worker. You are a godly worker. Colossians 3, 23-24 says, Whatever you do, and this is actually, I'll read this again later, but this is actually in the passage in Colossians that's geared to bondservants. So this is in context. Colossians 3, 23 through 24, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Amen? And so by your godly submission in everything, which doesn't violate the commands of God, to authority in the workplace, working for God, not for man only, you adorn the gospel. You're adorning the gospel. You're making it beautiful by your submissive behavior, attitude at work. Amen? (laughs) There's not a lot of amens when you talk about submission, so let's keep going. Godly workers, the second thing that I think Paul lays out here is that godly workers adorn the gospel by a well-pleasing attitude. Titus 2.9, bondservants are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. In the next two verses, Paul uses positive and negative statements, positive and negative commands to make his point. You are to be well-pleasing and not argumentative. You are not to pilfer, but show all good faith. It's easier 
If you have children, you kind of understand this. It's easier to just simply say, don't do that. Stop doing that. Why? Just stop, right? But it's always best for godliness, for maturity, to couple a do not with a here's what we do instead, with instruction, right? Correction without instruction only breaks the will of a person. We must be instructive. It's true that we must know what not to do, but we must also know what to replace those things with, lest we walk around in defeat and not knowing what we are to be doing, only to know what we shouldn't do. So godly workers should display a well-pleasing attitude. They're not to be argumentative. If you are struggling with submissiveness in your workplace, it is likely that you have ventured into this area of argumentation. To be argumentative here means to resist or to be heavily antagonistic to the point of complete opposition. Paul has in mind rebellion, almost. And this kind of behavior is not mere disagreement, which is allowable for godly workers. Godly workers are allowed to disagree with their employers and even to talk through things. That's not what Paul's saying here. He's not saying you can't have your own opinions. He's saying you must not be argumentative. This kind of argumentation is going out of your way to make life difficult for those you work with or for those in authority over you. It might be to their face. It's very likely at least behind their back. But it bears repeating. There may be a God-ordained time to stand up for something which might receive the incorrect label of your being argumentative. But that's not what Paul has in view here. Paul has in view here sinful argumentation. That you are being rebellious. You're being, in, you're being spitefully antagonistic. And Paul is addressing that kind of miserable work behavior that is easy to have when you work somewhere you don't necessarily like or enjoy. You go to work with an unhappy, ungrateful heart each day, and it shows in your body language, it shows in the way that you behave with coworkers or with those customers, if you have customers or clients or whatever, it shows. Everybody's gone through the fast food line or the, uh, the checkout line at Walmart asked the worker politely, how's your day, and been vomited on with how awful the workplace is, how terrible life is. Right? I'm, not, I'm not really making an assessment about some of those people. Some of those people are going through really difficult situations, and so it's a great opportunity to talk. I'm just saying this is the kind of stuff that begins to spill out. Most of you have had coworkers, or if you don't have a coworker who's been this way, you're probably them, Right? <laughs> And so people are just kind of avoiding you. It's like that crazy uncle in every family. If you don't have a crazy uncle in the family, you are the crazy uncle in the family, right? Or at least the stats are in our favor that you are. That's okay. We welcome crazy uncles here also. Well-pleasing, though, on the other hand, means to give pleasure and satisfaction. 
And what's interesting about the word and the way it's used here is that it means to do it at times even to a greater degree than usual. So one person goes out of their way, right, to be argumentative. They're looking for reasons to argue. They're looking for reasons to cause problems. This person that Paul's saying you should be at work is well-pleasing. That's someone who goes out of their way looking for ways to bring pleasure into the workplace. It's interesting. It's a, it's a great contrast that Paul lays out here. It doesn't take grand gifts, right, showing up on Friday, every Friday with a box of donuts, though if you want to do that, do it. But it doesn't take that. It doesn't even take becoming a workaholic, which I think many of us have lied to ourselves and said this is what it takes to be a well-pleasing employee, is that we must work ourselves to death. This is not what's... This is not what Paul's laying out. In high school, I worked for a guy who, if he caught you standing around, he would make statements like, when you get done holding the counter down, how about you go clean those glass cases over there? (laughs) Or after you're finished resting, I want you to go dust the shelves. It didn't take but like one, two maybe three, because I was a teenage boy. Who knows, it's probably 15. But it didn't take many in my mind to finally catch the drift that like, hey, don't stand around, you idiot. Get to work, right? Get busy doing something. And I'm talking like day one, having no training yet. That's the kind of stuff you're getting. And so after a few embarrassing exchanges, I, I learned to not stand still. If there was a lull in the action, you get busy, you restock shelves, you clean glasses, you do things. But what was interesting is that would bring compliments rather than criticism. Whatever the Lord grants you to do, do it with your best effort. Work diligently as unto the Lord and not toward man only. It's Jesus whom you are serving. If you are a Christian worker, you are doing your work unto the Lord himself. He has granted you the ability to make wealth, to make a living. You're like, oh, I'm not wealthy. I don't mean wealth wealthy. I just mean to make a living. He's granted you the ability to do that. And so every job we do, whether we like it or not, we need to understand this is a gift from the Lord. And so we enter into it with joy and we work hard. We want to be faithful to the Lord in this work. Children, if you have chores at home, Jones kids, you listen for sure, right? <laughs> I see you, Wells. Got you. <laughs> if you're given chores at home and mommy and daddy say, hey, it's time to do our chores today, or have you done your chores? The answer is not, Ugh. We get that at our house. I don't know. Maybe y'all don't. Right? This is a work that the Lord has given you through the authority over you, which is your parents, and you're to be submissive, you're to listen, you're to obey your mommy and daddy. Amen? Taking out the trash is not sinful, okay? It might feel that way, but it's not sinful. It's obeying the Lord. And so in every work that we enter into, we say, I am obeying God above everything else, and I'm going to work my rear end off for his glory. Amen? We want to be faithful to the Lord in your workplace. 
And you can do that by displaying a well-pleasing attitude. And by doing so, you become a godly worker and you are adorning, you're beautifying the gospel which you've received. The final thing I want to show you is 2.10. Godly workers adorn the gospel by showing all good faith. Godly workers adorn the gospel by showing all good faith. Not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything you may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Pilfering means to hold something back for yourself, which is a really nice way to say you're a thief. (laughs) Pilfering means that you are a thief. It's the idea of embezzlement or petty theft. A great biblical example where the same Greek word is used is in Acts chapter 5. There's a couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira who had sold, in those early days, many of the believers, especially the wealthy ones, were selling properties, they were selling um, extra things, giving it to the mission of the church so that those who were in need wouldn't have need any longer. Ananias and Sapphira fit the bill, they sell a piece of property, and all they had to do, all they had to do was say, here's what we sold it for, here's what we're giving to the church, and everything was fine. There was no instruction in the New Testament, there's no instruction that says you must give everything to the church. It's just be generous time and time again. But do you know what Ananias and Sapphira did? They held back. They pilfered. They lied then and said, here's what we sold it for, and we're giving you all of that. They lied. Peter there, as he's uh, confronting them about it, says that you are guilty of lying to the Holy Spirit. This is one of the reasons, it's one of our proof texts for saying that the Holy Spirit is one of the three persons of God, is that he can be lied to. And so they pilfered, and they lied about it, and God struck them down right there in that place. So pilfering is the idea of holding something back. It may involve money, sure, but I bet most workplace pilfering doesn't involve money at all. What do you bet? At least not in the sense that I'm taking literal money, cash money, dollars, dollar dollar bills in my hand, right? You, you can pilfer your company's resources, whether it be their tools, their accessories, their supplies. I think the one thing that's likely pilfered more than anything else in a company, anybody want to take a stab at it? Time. Yeah, there you go. You're tracking. This is how we know we're doing a good job, Alan. Everybody got that right. Time. You, you show up late. You falsely call in. You leave early. You take extended breaks. I once worked in a factory where I learned something I did not know before. I did not know it was humanly possible for so many men to have irritable bowel syndrome. There, there were more bathroom breaks among a handful of guys than is humanly possible. 
They should have just wilted away. Long ones, too. It's gross, I know, but that's pilfering, right? It's pilfering. They were pilfering the company's time. So Paul says, do not instruct bondservants not to be pilferers. Do not take something that isn't yours. Do not hold back more for yourself, especially if something that's not yours. It belongs to your workplace, belongs to your employer. But instead, show all good faith. Showing all good faith means to prove by arguments. Now that's interesting. We're not to be argumentative, but we are to prove by our behavior that we are a certain way. You can prove by arguments or action that you are reliable, trustworthy, good for that specific task that you have been given in your workplace. It's worth noting here that faith has a double meaning. On on one hand, it it is trustworthy or reliable. On the other hand, it has in view one's faith in Christ. So it's that you are faithful in your workplace because you are faithful to Christ. You see what I mean? They go hand in hand. It's If we were to sum it up, we might just call it Christian character. Your faith in Jesus makes you value being trustworthy, being dependable, reliable in your workplace. Whether you have a role, uh, the role at work that you want or not, you're not letting that interfere with the fact that your commitment is to Christ, and so you will show all good faith. Your boss will have confidence in you, because you work faithfully. And so you are to be submissive in everything. You are to be well-pleasing. You are to show all good faith so so that in everything you may adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? We must approach work as those who are servants to God. I'm a slave to God, and so therefore I enter into this employment, understanding my place. Colossians 3, 22 through 24, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, just doing what is seen, doing good when it's seen, not by way of people pleasing, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. This is the key that Paul's getting at here. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Sound doctrine begins with the fear of the Lord. I'm submitting myself to Him. I'm reverently, reverently obeying Him. And so I'm going to be a good workman. I'm going to work hard in my job. Whatever you do, verse 23, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Again, that comes from Colossians 3, addressing the very same issues. Our work, then, for earthly authority bears an eternal weight, and this is what we need to understand today as Christians. Our work for earthly authority bears eternal weight. Your workplace is a playing field for Christian character. It's where it is to be observed. 
And so I have some questions that I just want you to mull over in your heart and your mind. Maybe they're questions that you've been mulling over as we've gone through this, but let me bring it to bear on your mind this morning. Do you bear the fruit of a Christ follower in your workplace? Now, th- this, goes for, th- this goes for people who work in the home, people who work in a workplace, people who don't have employment yet at all but are actively seeking it. This is for everybody. Do you bear the fruit of a Christ follower in your work? Follow-up question. Because that one's not difficult enough to think through. Would your fellow employees or those in authority over you call you a submissive employee? Would they say that you do what you're asked to do with a happy heart? Would they say that you are or are not argumentative? Would they say that you are well-pleasing? Would they say he's not a pilferer? Would they accuse you of being one who shows all good faith? One of the things we need to do is let the Spirit of God alive in us bring redemption to our work by showing us that in everything, we may adorn the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, especially in our workplaces. And so I encourage you, brothers and sisters, boys and girls in your chores, pray for the Spirit's help in working diligently in everything as one who works for God and not for man, that you may adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ in your workplace. I said it at the beginning. I want to remind you of it now. Godly workers adorn the gospel. Amen. It it is my hope that New Life Community Church would be filled with men and women and boys and girls who approach work in a godly way. What a testimony to the transforming nature of the gospel of Christ that that person becomes a light for Christ in their work by working hard the right way. Wouldn't it be amazing if companies in our area started calling our church and saying, do you have any more like so-and-so? Because we want to hire them. That would be incredible. We want to pray for the Spirit's help in this. Amen? (laughs) If there's any unbelievers here today, somebody who's not placed their faith in Christ, earthly labor and toil is nothing compared to what Christ endured on the cross for you. Earthly label and toil comes with a certain burden, sure, but it's not the burden that you might feel over your sin. And I want to tell you that Christ took on himself all of your sin, 
so that you might come to know the salvation that is found in God your Savior. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, bore on his own back, if you will, God's wrath for your unrighteousness so that you may bear God's mercy and his righteousness. If you will turn from your sins today and believe in Christ Jesus as your Savior, then you will be saved today. I encourage you to seek him. And if you have questions, seek me out. I'm happy to answer them. Would you stand to your feet this morning? I want to pray for us. Heavenly Father, we praise you that your word is good and great, that your kindness is immeasurable toward us. And Lord, we, we thank you for work. We thank you that you've granted to us employment, the ability to make wealth and to bring provision to our lives. God, help us. Help us to adorn the gospel in our work. That's as men in our jobs, as women in our jobs, as young men and young women growing into, maybe seeking their careers, working even now, boys and girls, students, working on schoolwork. These, these are your work for us. Help us to do them well. That by our hard work, we may adorn the gospel of Christ. And that in an opposite manner of that, that by our lack of hard work, our unwillingness to work, God, we don't, want to be, we don't want to bring shame to your name or to this message. And so we thank you that you saved us from all sin, even the sin of laziness or lack of diligence in work, and that you strengthen us to become the kind of men and women that you've called us to be. And so we ask, Lord, that if we failed in these areas, reveal it to us that we might repent and trust your Holy Spirit for the strength to work heartily as unto the Lord and not man. Father, may we glorify your name in all that we say and do. It's in Christ Jesus' name I pray. Amen.